0: Hi, Season 2 of Third Culture Africans is here, and that includes our brand new website, www.thirdcultureafricans.com. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, we have the amazing Vanya of Vanilla's Jewelry. She is one of, I would say, friends in my wider network that continues to inspire me. She's an absolute trailblazer when it comes to creative arts and building a formidable career in fine jewelry and finding a way to position her African heritage at the root of what she's doing, very purpose-driven and is passionate about creating beyond the monetary and finding a wider purpose to her work and redefining her privilege to open doors for not just herself, but also to spark the conversation around generational wealth, what we can do with it, how that looks for anyone entering an industry where historically there is no seat at the table, for the lack of a better word. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, sitting with her to dig through just finding inspiration in beauty out of natural resources, the barriers that she's been able to break And just how she's firmly finding a place in an industry that has no one that looks like her and doing so with so much humility and grace. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Ariaiki Kisal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Hi, Vanya. Thank you for joining us in this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you for having me, Zizi. Finally, we, we're making it happen. I know. I know. I, I feel like friends are always the, the hardest to pin down as guests. But I will let you introduce yourself and what you do. My only opening is... You are Africa's first fine jewelry brand, and that is no small achievement. But I'll, I'll let you talk about Van Neles and, and what you're doing.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And yes, we kind of very proudly consider ourselves the world's first female founded African high jewelry house, something that was born from a rebellion and, and a need. And my name is Vania Lelish. I was born and raised in Guinea Bissau, a, a small country on the West African coast. I studied there in my early childhood, but then I moved to Portugal where I study. And then, I, then eventually I decided to come to London to. Know, to learn English, which then led me to New York, modeling. And in New York, I fell in love with the world of fine jewelry and only to find out that 75% of what is used, in fact, in fine jewelry comes from the continent. And yet there was no representation at all in this industry and uh, the amount of uh, beauty and knowledge and wealth that our natural resources create outside the continent. I was baffled because how come, you know, I was born and raised in West Africa. I had no idea this other side of the industry. So I embarked on a long quest into entering the industry, not only entering in and trying to carve a space for myself because it's a very generational industry, it's a very segmented industry, but also to give voice to honored countries where the gemstones come from, you know, like the Zambian emeralds, Mozambican rubies and tourmalines, and uh, Botswana and Namibian diamonds. You know, there are difficult countries like Congo, Sierra Leone. But there are also other countries that are doing remarkably well, like Namibia, you know, with their non-aggregated diamonds. You know, it's just mad. When I say non-aggregated diamonds, Namibian has a system that they have non-aggregated parcels that 100% of the content of the parcels are mined in Namibian soil. Therefore, traceability and transparency and ethicality are at the core of uh, those diamonds so this is what we're trying to get more people to buy and to know about it anyway this is a long introduction about myself (laughs) no but I think I think (laughs) think it sets the tone right like I think for most
0: of us right and and especially as Africans right like first the metals are your first introduction to jewelry right your ears get pierced when you're a young kid and we don't start talking gemstones or precious stones really on until you get past an heirloom or you're arriving at a special occasion, right? Usually that special occasion, the beginning is being engaged and then you're thinking of marriage. And to be fair, fine jewelry is not the most accessible thing. And and funnily enough that it all comes from, you know, our motherlands, right? Like you rightly pointed out, Namibia, you know, Sierra um, Leone. You know, everyone knows about blood diamonds, right? Like that is the key or or, or the term. But I, I think historically, what's been clear and with very much a lot of industries is that, and you know, I would say very much for me in the beauty industry, the same exists, right? The raw materials come from Africa, but somehow they've been colonized and they now belong to non-Africans, you know, they now are making huge profits for non-African businesses, you know, famously the beers, right, Mm -hmm. who will get to your career with them too. But you breaking out one as an African, two as a woman is groundbreaking for The fine
1: jewelry industry, you know, you're the only one. I think there are other African fine jewelry ladies now. Like, Oh, nice. Satu is one of them. And there are a few, she does fine jewelry also. And there are a few others not in the fine jewelry sphere, but certainly. And it's also, it's always important that I mentioned that we might be very few, if like two or three, but there are a few and then you have some African Americans that also in the industry. But to go back to what you say, as African owning a piece of jewelry, okay, that's one zero 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 point one percent of those that are privileged that can owe something like metal or precious gemstones or diamonds or whatever. But when I say how come I grew up in a continent I didn't know the wealth, and when I say wealth, it's not wealth in how much money it can bring you. I say wealth in um, in knowledge, wealth in uh, in job creation, in uh, generational wealth, because those things have been curating knowledge retainer and wealth creation outside a continent, not in a continent. And so, for me, one of the key things I do it very consciously is how to inspire young Africans, especially not the privileged ones, but every young Africans to look around our continent, our vast natural resources and think, how can we create something with it? Obviously, Africa is not industrialized. We don't manufacture. That is one of our biggest, biggest problem, but it's per design, right? Right that we don't have industries <laughs> creating industries we have mines but everything comes out of the mines and leave the continent straight away but going back to that it's just to look around be more curious and what can be done what can be you know used you know african civilizations were the first civilization to use gold and precious gems to adorn our bodies right starting from queen makeda in ethiopia travel to cleopatra and Across the continent, and then we had those, and we were doing our own mining, our own production, our own jewelry making. Right? We had the skills, and then we had those four, five hundred years, uh, which I call gap, to be politically correct, that the slavery, and then the dismantling of the African empires industries and cultures and so we kind of lost all the skills got stopped in jewelry making right but initially it was there you know Italy and France have been crafting jewelries for two three hundred years that was when Africans stopped (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, yeah. If you look at history, right, that was when we w- we were being so looted, and then uh, colonization came, and then post colonization, which I think is even worse, uh, b- because it prevents Africa from developing. You know, and then came our huge independence Pan Africanism who fought hard for us to be independent, self-sufficient. But each one each one of our great visionaries, Pan Africanists from Thomas Sankara, Lubumba, got killed, right? And then replaced by puppets. Anyway, I don't wanna be too political about it because I can go into into everything. I
0: think what's clear is there's a knowledge gap, right? There's there's this huge knowledge gap in Even just the foundations of creating industry, right? As 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 a continent, we're yet to go through an industrial revolution.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Everyone's saying, you know, that is coming with economic and political reform that we're seeing post COVID you know, this promise of all industries starting to find that because the world is also looking for the human capital labor and Africa is poised to to have that, right? Based on just our youth populations, the growth of that, and I guess the evolving nature of our economies. But what is clear is, you know, you have the privilege of education, you touched on having a modeling career as a student, and that began your professional career. So, just to give context, you were pretty successful as a
1: black model when you did model. Well, I wasn't pretty successful. I was lucky and I did get by. I was lucky that I was able to travel as much as I did and work as much as I did. But it came to a time that I needed to focus on what I was going to do later in my life. I never thought I could be a model forever or pass my 25th birthday. <laughs> so that was when I, I was thinking, what can I do after I turn you know, 25 and what I was going to do, and then this is right at the time where I I stumbled upon having a career in fine jewellery. It was fascinating for me because I wanted, um, when I found out about the lack of diversity and inclusion in fine jewellery, speaking to my mom and my mom was like, why don't you go and work for someone for at least ten years, and then if you still want to have your own brand, perhaps you can talk about it. Yeah. Then, but you need to have a good experience on that. So this is what I I set out to do. Went to study at GIA. Gemological Institute of America. I studied gemology and jewelry design in jewelry business. And then I was lucky enough. I got a job at Graf Diamonds and then Graf Diamonds. I worked for the Beers and then Sotheby's. But for me, working for all these companies, I was very lucky. But I was also very, very persistent because, you know, to enter this industry, you have to have a connection somewhere or your family. If you see all, all the jewelry, independent jewelry designers, or they either entered the industry... Because it's a generational thing or it was almost like a, a setup for them to enter and thrive, right? I had to build everything for myself because I'm the first one in, in my country. I wouldn't even say my family to be a jeweler, a pine jeweler, a diamond tier, yeah. you know? I yeah. didn't even know. So I just work very hard, whatever, given I set up a tone of who I was and how how hard I can work and how fast I can learn and faster than anyone who was having like three generation jewelers so or diamond tears and then um, I went to work for the beers which was very interesting.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. You started at Graph, though. You, you, graph started, dance, yes. yeah, you initially yes. started at graph and then you were head graph was first job into yes. the beers. Now, before we yes. jump into that, just what is a
1: gemologist? A gemologist is someone who studied precious gemstones. We call it diamonds and the big tree. And then you have uh, the other precious gemstones. So diamonds and then you have the big tree, ruby, sapphires and emeralds, which you need to have an extensive knowledge and training to be considered a gemologist. And then you have pearls and cores, and then you have other... They call it semi-precious, but to me they're all precious because they all go through the same hardship process that Mother Nature gives them to bring them into the hurt surface. So when you finish your gemology course, you need to have training. So it's kind of you need to have your residency, right, to just uh, master what you learn. At the GIA, because obviously you don't go through as much material studying as you would do working for a company like Graff or the Beers, or even fine jewelry. At the end,
0: so GIA being the standard, you have a lot
1: of schools, but they are the foremost recognized school. To being uh, a gemologist to enter the trade. Yes. And these are the guys who
0: kind of rate the quality and clarity and things like that, right? Their standard is, is what most people base the pricing on precious stones on, right? Absolutely.
1: They are basically the school, but they also laboratory. They also grade and test the diamonds and gemstones that then give each a diamond certificate. So you have two parts of GIA. You have the school, and then you have the laboratory.
0: I guess the obvious question is, you get your foot through the door, Graf, De Beers, Sotheby's, and then you decide, hey, I can do this. Where does that come from? Where does that come from to kind of go, well, why not me to get into this and, and create my own fine jewelry brand? I can create something also that is aspirational. You might not have the direct heritage in terms of three generations of family in the business, but a huge part of your heritage in terms of your African heritage now forms a huge part of what you decide to create. Like where where does that even begin or the motivation to do that or the inspiration?
1: Um, I have to say I've been, I entered the industry working for all these companies, knowing that my time will be limited, is about to learn as much as I can. And save as much as I can so I can um, have my own brand. This was already the mentality I entered the industry was the final goal will be this wow so you knew early on yes that was I was very secure about it remember when I said I told my mom that I want to have my own brand and my mother says why don't you work 10 years for the companies and and after 10 years if you still want to do it after experience and and know how and know why there is not uh, representation and then you can think about it and do it for yourself. So this was a, already a pre... <laughs> I didn't think I was going to do 10 years, but then I ended up actually doing 11 because I was having so much fun at the jobs I was having and uh, learning, you know. And so I decided to stay and I stayed. When it came time to have my own brand, it's really like uh, I remember sitting at set thinking, oh my God, you work so hard. <laughs> Why don't I work this hard but for me? You know these long hours, but for me, it's not going to be easy. And then obviously comes the thing about funding, right? Because this yeah, is an you, have industry. To, you have to buy buy the stones to make the jewelry <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> this you know, is, I know this is an industry that requires uh, heavy financing and pretty much everything. But I found a way I could start small because I work all these years in industry. People knew me, suppliers and workshops. I was able to cover a really good deal for myself in essence that why this industry is so generational? Because people know each other and they know each other's parents and they know each other's family. They give you credit. They give you things on memo. They give you things. But for me, it wasn't because they knew my parents or they knew my family. It's because they knew me from working for the brands. Therefore, my reputation, my integrity, my hard work, it was the only thing I had going for me. So when it came a time I said, I remember this, you know, it's a man, in the london bours you know i told them i really want to have, I have my brand but i don't have the capital to buy diamonds and and i spoke to the workshop that was we were using in italy I said i need to make some jewelry but i just need like longer payment terms and i said why well, don't worry if you're not making too many pieces we can make a few for you amazing because they knew me and that the supply of diamonds lend me Above 11 diamonds on memo that said, bring me the money or bring me my stone bag. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, but is what I said your reputation. Is your most precious prize because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have the business I have today because how would I start? Very true. I made some classic, very safe bet pieces like engagement rings, studs, and Riviera, small pendants, and then I was selling them back to my clients I knew along the way or friends or word of mouth, you know, when it was, I have... The two couples who got engaged within the first two months. So I made their engagement rings, you know. So this is how I started. And then after three years, one of my clients uh, who became my investor, he said, I like what you do, what do you need to grow? I said, capital. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did a business plan nine months later, negotiating back and forth, nine months later, he invested. That allowed me to rent a beautiful space on Bond Street, a PR company create the brand, you know, invest in, in my rebranding and create collections, be bold, be confident, you know, bring my heritage to the forefront of what I do, of my brandings. This was why, how I started. But initially, even with that small investment I had, I still, your reputation is everything. It's your most precious prize, really, you know, and yeah. But that was how Vandellas came about. And the choice to, to name it after you. Well, I was struggling a lot because I didn't want something so vanilla. So I thought, how about, I thought about several names, you know. I thought about empresses, queens, and African queens and emperors. You love and, the queen, don't you? And, <laughs> and, of course I do, you know. My grandmother used to be obsessed thinking like we came from a a regal tribe in in Guinea-Bissau. Anyway, no, but I just think like, um, I thought about so many things. And then at the end of the day, I'm building a brand, pushing a narrative that is new, even though you have brands that exist for 200 years, mining and sourcing in Africa. No one mentions where the gemstones come from. No one honors the countries where the gemstones come from. I was coming full on with that into the market. I remember my PR company told me, you might want to go light on the old African agenda because Africans won't buy from you to start. Oh my God. Don't you hate that? And second, well, was this uh, this the PR company we both shared at the same time at one point? Oh, no, 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 no. no. Oh, this is another one. That was another. Yeah. Okay. Well, Africans won't buy from you because they are buying brands. Then you will alienate. Well, which is true. And then you will alienate your other non-African clients. So I would go lighten it. I said, you know, whoever going to buy from me identifies with my story, with authenticity of what I'm doing and uh, my sourcing. Because I think clients, the international, modern, powerful woman wants to know where the luxury that i consuming are coming from. And I'm telling them, your Emerald are coming from Zambia. And, you know, I'm giving them stressability into what they are consuming. And for me, that's very important. And if they like that authenticity and they like my story, they
0: want mine. There's a clear education, right? That that happens with you being a part of the industry. Now you mentioned queen and I have here a quote, diamonds are a girl's best friend. You make pieces for women, but queens, you know, I, I, I <laughs> that's what I have. <laughs> It's it's such a you statement, but it's so true. I, I think, you know, the reality, as you pointed out at the beginning, which is 75% of the industry is from Africa in terms of the materials they use.
1: 75% of what is used in fine jewelry coming from Africa,
0: yeah. But we're not present in, in the end product in, in in any way. You know, I think now we're seeing with, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and the drive of diversity and inclusivity. We're finally seeing women of or people of color feature even in the adverts. You know, for a very long time, you know, you wouldn't really see black models, modeling, you know, prevalent in in advertorials for fine jewelry. I think that's that's only something we're seeing more of now. Um, and then you taking that and absolutely smashing it and and getting the support of huge celebrities you know like recently you had Rihanna in one of your pieces and and your pieces aren't your everyday pieces right you mentioned your evolution from your typical engagement rings through to you know the pendants and the studs you know you're making jaw-dropping statement pieces that people see yes trying (laughs) and I'm obsessed. I've already told you the one I like. So maybe one day when, when you're feeling very generous, you'll let me wear it. <laughs> just okay. to pose and take a picture. But yeah, I digress. I'll, I'll get to my point. In between the bespoke work you do, there's a part of your business that's focused on on growing retail. So working with Nima Marcus and being next to your Chanel or your Dior's, how did that moment culminate? And and for you, because there's one thing to be a private client jeweler, right? Like that is perhaps the lane most people would expect you to be in. But to transition from that into, hey, I'm in Nima Marcus and I'm sitting next to your Chanel's, your Dior's, your Cartier's, etc.
1: I know retail, right?
0: So there are metrics involved with that that are insane too.
1: Well- I was, uh, I think, uh, when we finally got the contract with Neiman Marcus, and which, by the way, we're no longer at Neiman Marcus because they filed for bankruptcy. And uh, <laughs> I was going to get to that, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we're no longer at. Don't worry. I was smart enough to move very fast. You have to because you. I'm working on a no risk. I can't run any risks. So basically, positioning and placement for me was everything. So I had to have meetings, flying in and out. I remember I was actually pregnant, flying in and out to the US, tried to get. I yes, we're gonna be here, but who's gonna be on my right and on my left? Oh, which brand? They said, well, you know, how do you be very polite and charming? Try to make them move you to next to. That brand because you know positioning is everything, and so I think um, being bold and asking and say we deserve we produce in the same factory we don't have the same marketing dollars but quality if not better ours, so in the end I think. Uh, you know, they let us be there to try two weeks and you have to sell a piece. And we were lucky, like in the first two weeks, we sold like a piece for 200,000. So that was, say, okay, we're going to give you another three weeks next to this, to this brand. So obviously we have to perform, but it was sheer, sheer luck as well that we happened to sell when we were next to those brands.
0: And then you t- you take that and then in the US, in the UK, in Bahrain, in Doha,
1: where else have i have i named everywhere now Yeah, the us Mar- we did it in paris but it it wasn't so successful
0: this is a message that you're spreading not just in i guess the market that you would expect um and as africans we do consume those with the disposable income do consume fine jewelry you know absolutely we make up a percentage of the consumers across all of these other much larger companies the one that i found most admirable is that you were able to get the award for great british brand and having that stamp of approval in terms of quality and and alongside your de Beers and you know your Burberrys and Dunhills and and those those sort of brands that have won that award before was that of great meaning for you like obviously you've mentioned positioning being a key thing and making sure that you're counted amongst the best was that just another notch to kind of go
1: but here we are too to correctly say that it wasn't an award was like they selected 75 great british brands and we were part across different luxury categories and we were part of that we were selected i was very proud when that happened and it gave us a seal of approval that our craftsmanship our quality And our brand can strongly stand along all other brands that exist far longer than us and that has huge marketing dollars. They go for the quality and the craftsmanship. So although we are an African brand and we were able to create something that stood strongly and firmly next to all these other brands. So that for me... I think uh, it happened two years in a row. I was very happy, let's say, humbly, very happy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's you know you're being really modest, but I th- I think it's this, thank you. <laughs> it's it's
0: one thing to to have the ambition to create something in the luxury space, and it's another thing with the African heritage to successfully do it. You know, I I face this in the beauty industry with Malay consistently, where You know, it's a huge barrier for Africa and luxury to sit in the same space. And more and more, I think, as the world is being more open, we are seeing across industries, fashion, music, you know, jewelry, more and more, there's an appreciation of actually the heritage that we do have. So I don't think it's that we never had luxury. I think there was just never an appreciation and the right value placed on what we did have. I agree you know and then you coming out with collections like the Nile collection and and making it very clear the root of this inspiration so so no one can discount that actually there is a history to the people of the Nile and fine jewelry and you know you might disassociate it but actually this is real because i think there's a huge edu- education right like I do this with Malay and you're doing it with jewelry, where off the back of it, there's an education going on. And even to ourselves as as Africans, right? Because we don't even always understand a lot of our history. And, you know, in articles like Forbes, Vogue, Vanity Fair Tatler, New York Times, you know, everywhere you've been, that's like a resounding theme or resounding theme around Van Leles, which is, you know, there's also an education around the fact that you know this luxury is very firmly rooted and you know the
1: appreciation thereof needs to exist I think you capture it so beautifully and so well said because for me whenever I have a piece of advice a piece of PR and I have the Forbes team sitting with me twice and the New York Times did I think 2018 and uh, two pages spread on Van Leles. And that was a very investigative kind of report we had. So whenever, for me, that is just, not only is a piece of promoting my work commercially, but also an education to people. You know, whoever reads it, I have people calling, oh, I just saw this brand on the New York Times. I want to, I want to, find out more and i want to buy a piece because i'm so utterly proud of what you're doing my goodness you know but is the education of um, the story spreading that uh, really is what inspired me for instance when we receive like dms on instagram like a girl in kenya in nairobi saying like oh my god I never knew someone like you existed. My dream has been to design jewelry and you are doing it. How did you do it? I would send them an article, (laughs) you know, this is how I did it. You can do it too. Listen to
0: third culture Africans.
1: It's all there. (laughs) It's kind of, you know, promoting the, the work we do, but also inspiring other people through what we are doing. I've talked about some of your highlights, right? But was there a moment for
0: you where you felt like, I think I've made it. I think
1: this is it. Like, no, 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 Malay, no. <laughs> oh, Zizi, no, not yet. <laughs> I wish, uh, as I uh, said. Rihanna. I, could, I, 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 could, I, call, I call you Malay, which is your... your, your <laughs> My name. I know, I know. We, <laughs> we have this. I'm Malay, by the way.
0: I am also AKA
1: Malay. But yeah, yeah, okay. So what I say I'm collecting, you know, fine jewelry is so competitive. It is so hard, you know. And my job might look glamorous, but it's not. I get into the office Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, the first part of my day I'm dealing with insurance, security, shipping, export, import. I'm dealing with all the things that, that could go wrong. And then I can concentrate in something less complicated, like the design aspect of it, the sourcing aspect of it. But because the industry is so saturated and competitive, it keeps me on my toes. And also because we're not usually funded, I'm self-funded. So we always need to really be frugal and very careful. And so I said, I count my miracles every time. Success is not yet on my doorstep. Let's see in 10 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but what is what is that for you then?
0: What then would you sort of look back and go, okay, I I think I've achieved the success now.
1: I can say success in terms of getting my vision, my story, and the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think we have been successful in letting the story out, in making sure it is reaching the right people and is reaching people. In terms of the business success, we're still not there because, you know, I would like to do 100 million, (laughs) you know. You have your target of uh, what you can do, right? So that's uh, one goal you're working but I know myself, if in five years we reach 100 million, I might be saying, oh, okay, how about X, Y, Z? I was you know going mean? to say, <laughs> I was going to say, who are you kidding? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I've got here purposeful sophistication. So there's something about showing the continuity in vanillas and You know, you're very passionate about ethical mining. You know, I touched on blood diamonds at the beginning, but, you know, a huge part of what you do has a huge community social responsibility aspect to it, whether that's supporting, you know, your charity or furthering ethical mining, or even just pushing forward with education to the next generation and within the industry. Now, is that a pay it forward thing because most people will say, oh, what charitable you know thing do you support, etc. But I feel like with with Vaneles it's it's completely different. I, I feel like you are trying to build the frameworks of what an industry looks like for fine jewelry in Africa on the ground.
1: I'm absolutely. Mal- uh, sorry. <laughs> <Completely> mal- <laughs> I know. Everyone
0: now knows my nickname with you. <laughs>
1: okay. Well Absolutely, I think, um, as I say, there is a an honest and genuine reason why I enter fine jewelry industry, why I wanted to do what I wanted to do, why my work, if it's is and my brand is framed the way it's framed, because I feel like I need to have a purpose. The purpose cannot only be commercial purpose. It has to be a soulful purpose. And what drives me and what gives me that sense of drive and purpose is to along the way of building my brand, my work, is how can I also inspire other Africans to look around, and say, what can we do with we do our own natural resources? It might take 10 years, it might not be in, in my lifetime, but we have to start somewhere, right? We cannot continue the way things have been. This is why I sponsor a old girls school because it starts with education. And when I speak uh, in engagements and in the continent, he said, What can we collectively do, our generation, to make sure which we, we start changing the course of how we engage in creative arts? And creative arts in- involve as we can see fine jewelry is a creative art and involves our natural resources gold and diamonds and precious gemstones which creates knowledge and generational wealth But generational wealth can only be created if we have the knowledge. The gemstones, goldsmithing, you know. Cutting, polishing. This whole industry, we can start looking into We said, can we bring these industries into the continent?
0: There's a part of your work that has to do with diamond burses and wanting to, and for, I guess, a lack of, you know, I've done my research for this episode, so I say it casually, but... Essentially, <laughs> <I can see. laughs> essentially the, the marketplace, right, that makes it possible for, you know, the girl in Kenya who's reached out to you to actually begin to actually become a player. That's part of the work that you're doing, having, you know, within your foundation, because, you know, there's a privilege in, in being in a 400 percent margin business, right?
1: Yes, there is for sure. But uh, I think the most uh, important thing is how can we inspire other people to enter the industry it cannot just be one person and how can we collectively you know join forces and what i say what i'm very vocal about is how come there is not an african bourse why there's not a diamond bourse in the continent with all these diamonds being mine in the continent there's not one that functions 100% in the continent.
0: Okay, so if, if you can explain what a burst is in the first instance, I think.
1: Okay, so for instance, let's give an example of uh, Botswana and Namibia, right? Pretty much uh, 80% of what is mine in Namibia lives Namibian soil straight away and is sold in diamond bourses across the world. It's sent to be auction. There is not that auction happening in the continent. It happens outside the continent, like Dubai, Tel Aviv. So, the auction is they get Hong the Kong.
0: stone, and then that's where the first time the stone is ever priced? They mine
1: the stones, they pay a marginal tax for those rough diamonds, and the rough diamonds leave the continent straight away. And then they are sold to site holders that in, in these auctions. And site told us buy and then polish and sell these diamonds, these diamonds through the bourses. They have bourses in New York, Antwerp, in Israel, in Hong Kong, and Dubai. But we don't have one in the continent, <laughs> you know. So we are losing taxes. We are losing a whole industry just there, because we're not uh, demanding, and I'm saying demanding because we can demand this. It's our own goods <laughs> to be at least the first time the rough diamonds are sold. Let's start doing it on the continent first. Make those 80 site holders come to the continent and bid and do an auction inside the continent, inside the producing country and let them pay the taxes, and then they can export it in, 10, five, in 5, 10 years. And then we can say, now, if you want to be a siteholder, you want to buy our diamonds, you have to help us build lapidaries to polish and cut the diamonds in the country. And then we created The whole industry has to be created, but we have zero industry. We have mining industry, and then everything is sold. But do we have
0: the foundations or the resources to even attempt this? You know, this is always the question. And and I say this not because I believe my question, because one of the things that I'm focused on proving with Malay is actually it is possible, right? And one of the things you are proving too is it is possible. So then why is there this barrier? Um, okay. This is uh, why there is this barrier. Loaded. The question is so loaded, but only you and I can tackle it, right?
1: So, so. No one has interest for the continent to industrialize itself in this. No one, zero. They, all these big, big mining companies, they can do all this fanfare in, in Botswana wherever. They have no interest for the gemstones, for the diamonds to be 100% polished and cut in the continent. Antwerp became a diamond hub, a diamond center for the last 200 years, right? And they don't produce an ounce of diamond. Tel Aviv became the diamond scent of the world after the inception of the country. It didn't produce an ounce of diamonds, right? Not even the dust. And then you have Hong Kong, which in the last 30 years became what it became as a diamond hub of the world. And then you go to Dubai, who in 15 years is a diamond it's taking over Antwerp. If those countries could do it without having the product... We the ones we have the product. Why we cannot do it? And, and I think it goes. It, but it's true. It goes to your point that
0: you know. And and this is why I feel like the podcast for me is so important because it's it's a it's a curation of people who are in some cases defying the odds to continue to create within industries that were otherwise not exposed to as career options as options now yes you know there are huge barriers to entry into fine jewelry but also why is it not an option for a young kid in africa to think it possible that this could be them they could be the next cartier or van cleef because we we don't, it doesn't even feature on the list, right? Doctor, accountant, lawyer. Okay, now maybe permissible, you could be a sports star. But even then, you know, there's a question mark on the longevity. Most recently, you know, musicians. But there's so much else out there that, one, economically can radicalize where we are, right, as people. Yeah, absolutely. To create industry. And three, really build the diversity. And, and I hope that this episode-
1: oh, You touch on something. Let me give you two quick examples. For the last 30 years, you have a list that comes out with the richest diamond tier families in the world. It's a list that produces 20 richest diamond tier families in the world. For the last consecutive 20 years, it's been families who have minds in Africa. They are Swiss, Israelis, Indians, English, all other nationality, but not an African. And my ex boss, Graf, makes part of that list and his ex wife, okay? So let me now tell you I would go to a country. You know, all these countries I want to buy directly from diamonds. Botswana, Namibia, Angola, you name it, I go today. I'm speaking to African countries, right, that manage a percentage of their country production of diamonds. Because the vast percentage, let's say 80%, is owned by the beers, Right. But the ones the country is allowed to manage, which is shameful to even say that the ones the country is allowed, the national companies or the national government is allowed to manage, tells me, oh, we can sell to you, but the problem is we have a list of the requirements you have to meet. You have to be X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. They blurb a list of things that, which is like, you have to have a million dollars minimum to purchase and you need to be able to purchase eight to 10 times a year. And my question to to those people is like, okay, fair enough. You sell to XYZ families, but this family has been in industry for, for generations. I am your first African fine jewelry brand. No generation before me. This is the first. And I have a hundred thousand. An example. I want to buy a hundred thousand of diamonds. So in five months or more, I can sell the diamonds you have bought from you, bring, add to my profit, and come back and probably buy four hundred or six hundred thousand. And then in three to four years, I might be able to buy eight times a year minimum a million dollars per purchase right but you're telling me no these are are your requirements which by the way was written by someone who has no interest to bring diversity into the industry let's just give you an example from the graph I work with him is in his book. So he started with a 5,000 loan from his father-in-law. He didn't start with 1 million per purchase eight to 10 times a year. Hare Krishna in India came from the lowest caste in India, poor as poor can be. Now is the wealthiest diamond dealer in India, one of the wealthiest men in India. Do you think he started with a million dollars? Eight times a year, eight million dollars a year. Of course not. So what I'm asking, I'm not asking to give me anything for free. What I'm asking is to look into context, right? I'm saying I only have a hundred thousand. Could you look into my context? And also, if I want to bring diversity and change into the industry, this is probably the only way. Because how many first generation jewelers of Africans can afford even a hundred thousand? But this is it, right? (laughs) And so I guess when
0: you you think about the metrics involved, someone else is saying, but this is not attainable. Like, I can't attain it. And and I hope this episode really inspires and and serves to give people the understanding that perhaps you might not have the exact same story as those that you know. Mm -hmm. But if you're determined enough and you can put in the work in the right way. And if this is something that you see yourself doing, it is possible
1: because you've made it possible. Exactly. And also because if we don't give each other that opportunity, for instance, for what I was told when I traveled to these countries in Africa, it's almost like a knife to my heart. It's heartbreaking because when I wanted to start, it was a Jewish man in a bourse in London, who lend me my first diamonds? Lend me my first diamonds. Didn't even take money, didn't even take money from me, so I can have a chance. But there's something about showing up, right? Exactly, and it was my Italian manufacturing that was like also generational family making jewelry who made my jewelry and gave me the jewelry without any absurd demands. Now that I built everything and it's so documented all over the world, I go to my own peers. No, you need to have a minimum million dollars. <laughs> Isn't a heartbreak that comes again to bring me when I see retail? I see very wealthy Africans rather buying, you know, less quality for for a brand name, you know. Yes, exactly. Knowing full well that above Cartier, there is this African woman doing beautiful, high quality jewelry at such a great price, they still go and prefer and buy the Van Cleef, the Cartier. la 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 la. It's just like. A, we do support
0: each other. I think there's something in the psychology of, you know, a, a large portion being aspirational, and aspirational is something that we see across all cultures, right? Whether it's Russians or Arabs or Africans, etc. I think that there's something about aspirational wealth, and and what you're creating is substantial. And and don't forget that there's an education too, right? In the understanding of that heritage, and I think I wish that I, you know, get to a point one day where I can afford one of your pieces and I can I can wear it proudly. Oh. No, no, no. <laughs> <Thank> honestly, <you. laughs> because I, I I do feel like these are the beginnings, and and hopefully to talk about it more, to 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 shed light and bring the consciousness that there are brands out there like yours that are challenging. The status quo and are, are bringing value. some of your pieces are exquisite and you know for anyone who doesn't believe me, check it out right? <laughs> yeah totally And they're the stuff that you know your dreams are made of you know I like sparkly things and my <laughs> dreams are made of some of your pieces
1: like the hoop the hoops I'm like, oh my God oh the hoops are great. the hoops by the way, we are reducing those in prices. Girl, the the hoops, (laughs) the hoops, the hoops, um,
0: the the hoops are such a functional piece, but just so beautiful. It's, you know, I'm a, you know, tracksuit hoops and hair up kind of girl when, when my hair is longer at the moment, my teeny weeny fro, but just with a pair of hoops and something easy, and you know, it's going to be talked about because it's not your average hoop. It's there's something elegant about your style, and and that speaks to your creativity and how much you've put into the design, etc. And you know, if anything, I hope this episode really just broadens everyone's mind, and and also for me, you know, you challenge me. You know, we have our meetups and our chats now and again, and you know, you challenge me to think bigger because this is in a million years. I think as a young African girl, it never crossed my mind that someone like me could have a fine jewelry brand that would sit next to Chanel or Dior. And long may it continue.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: And the work that you're doing is incredible. And the quality thereof, and I know the struggles, right? because we have some of those conversations where we talk about you know, the challenges we have, just being heard, just being seen, just breaking the door down to even get that placement or that conversation or or the hamster wheel you have to be on just to, to keep going. And you know, you modestly said you've been really lucky, but you've put in a heck of a lot of work to be where you are with Van Leles. And, you know, I want to say, you know, congratulations and
1: thank you. Thank you so much. And
0: I think you're doing an incredible job while juggling you know, being a mom and being a very present mom at that, and in and, and trying to to win at it all and jumping on planes. You know, I remember you know having a conversation with you, and you're like, "I'm just on my way to New York." And there's something about the hustle of being a mom, building something as big as as you're tackling, and still being very humble about it. And and I get that's oh, what makes you special. You, you know, that's <laughs> <Thank> that, you. <laughs> that's what makes you very special. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? You know, we talked about Instagram and stuff, but where can people find you?
1: Well, we launched our e-commerce website because we're moving greatly into digital work right now. We're adding videos, but each time they get in touch with us, we organize Zoom call, either myself or one of my team. We tend to be, you know, it's fine jewelry, so... We don't have like the masses. It's not like we have 20 Zoom calls a day with our client where we demonstrate the pieces. And then our e-commerce website, Instagram, of course, our WhatsApp is always available. And we also sell on First Dips. Hopefully, we're going to have two points of retail. You know, in the US, First Dips for sure. In London, we have our salon on Brook Street, opposite Claridges Hotel, where everybody can see the pieces live it was like a a retail store yeah
0: and there are pieces that are starting at you know two thousand or pounds right so yes it's not all not attainable the one i like is unattainable (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: let me know which one you you want girl you know it's the bridal cuff it's the bridal cuff
0: (laughs) (laughs) the bridal cuff which one the bridal cuff you know the one it's like it's almost like
1: a hoop but it's just all diamonds it's, you call it the bridal oh cuff. yeah the earrings yeah. Ah, yeah yeah they're so beautiful aren't they oh god i love that I, those yeah. are yours oh. just let me know how much you want to pay for them <laughs> <laughs> Everyone you heard that? You heard that? I'm kidding. You heard that?
0: <laughs> Off the record.
1: Send me an offer,
0: ZZ. So so when when you see me on the front page of the newspaper, uh, <laughs> entrepreneur steals <laughs> earrings from friend and is going to, you know why. Um, but there are some pieces that are investment pieces, but still incredibly beautiful. Like the Amour earrings are just... Oh, bridal curve, they're, they're beautiful. The Amour are more, uh, uh, stunning. And, you know, if anyone's looking for something special, the festive season's coming up um, and want a beautiful gift for a special person, you know, I would I would encourage you. your Your, your reimagining of, you know, basic studs with... You know what you did with the Nile collection and the studs, where you've mixed in, you know, emeralds, rubies. Oh,
1: um,
0: with j- jackets, just to make it uh, versatile. Yeah, I, you Those know, are beautiful? Yeah, the, the jackets, um, the daisy. Oh goodness, I, 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 can keep going. You know, I. <laughs> if 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 I were to share my Pinterest board openly, um, yeah. So Instagram, your website, everything will be in the show notes. I'm really grateful for the time today. I I know that you are currently meant to be taking it easy. So I really appreciate the time, Vanya. And thank you so much for for coming
1: on. Thank you so much. I send you a big kiss, Zizi. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid. You are strong and you are just getting started.